All right, good morning, everybody. Let's, uh, let's find our places. Let's go ahead and get ready. You can open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. As you're doing that, let me, let me just start with a, a quick announcement. It was just brought to my attention. Um, one of the families in our church, John and Carol Pace, apparently Carol said that she lost her wedding ring in the church building today. So if by chance anybody happens to look around their area and see it, if you just turn that in to us at the counter out in the lobby, we'll make sure she gets that. Or if you, if you know her, you can give it to her directly. Um, but we're a family, right? We can help out the family and we can kind of take care of stuff like that. Uh, as a family, hopefully you'll also have a little grace for me. I'm a little under the weather and so the voice isn't exactly there and I'll, I'll do my best to present to you what I think the Lord has for us. Um, on the heels of this idea of uh, celebrating the fact that it's, it's Veterans Day, certainly we are so, so very thankful for the brave men and women. They, they sacrifice a lot, and they do what they do so that, like Todd said, we can have this freedom, so that we can worship the Lord together. And, and we enjoy the blessings of God by living in a free country where we can proclaim the Word of God without direct persecution. Um, we can do it in organizations of local churches that are exempt from paying taxes, at least for now. And uh, that's because we fought for our freedom. And when I say we, I mean the brave men and women who stood for us. And so we're certainly thankful for that as a people. But uh, it's interesting because today we're going to look at a situation where individually, I, I want you to all consider, do you really realize how much God really loves you. I, I want you to just consider this thought today. I mean, he loves you so much. He desires desperately to have individual fellowship with each and every one of us. You remember when God created man, right? Adam and Eve, and they were in the Garden of Eden, and they were perfect. And when they were created, they were created in God's image. And the Bible says that God would come down in the cool of the day and he would fellowship with Adam and it was a regular occurrence. It was something that they did until sin happened. Until they chose to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the thing that they were forbidden from doing. And once sin happened and there was this fall and this sin nature entered in, what, what happened is, is that fellowship with God was broken. It was severed. And it was severed very dramatically, so much so that even just two chapters later in Genesis chapter 5, once Adam and Eve begin to bear children, in Genesis 5 it says very clearly that when they bore children, they bore children in Adam's image. They aren't in God's image anymore. And all of us, every generation down since that time, have been born in Adam's sinful, fallen image. In other words, man had lost the image of God. And so we saw a little bit last week that then all through the Old Testament, never one time is the phrase sons of God ever used to describe individual believers in Jehovah. Never one time. And we saw how corporately Israel is a picture of that last week. But when Jesus Christ came, Jesus Christ came to restore the lost fellowship with God and man. That's why he came. In fact, it tells us exactly why he came in Luke chapter 19 and verse number 10 where it says, For the Son of Man has come, why? To seek and to save that which was lost. Amen. And I want you to notice in the wording of that verse, it does not say that he came to seek and to save those that were lost. 
That which was lost is that lost image of God. Man had lost the image of God. And Jesus Christ came to be able to seek and to save and restore that so man could once again be in fellowship with God. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 18, it says, And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. I guess the question, the ultimate question that each and every one of us must come face to face with, and I would like for you to consider it today, is do you know that you personally have been restored to fellowship, peace with God? Do you know that if, God forbid, your physical life were to tragically end before this day's over, that you have currently this peace and this fellowship with God? He came so that you could have that. So that now, in Christ, those of us who have received his free gift of salvation, in Christ we are restored to the fellowship that man originally had with God in the garden. Amen? So that's our position in Christ, if you know him as your Lord and Savior, and that's a beautiful thing. But practically, daily, as we live from day to day, do we really enjoy that level of intimacy with the Lord? I mean, do we really live our lives in such a manner that that personal fellowship is vibrant and real every single day? Well, frequently not. As we've been walking through this book of 1 Corinthians, the it, there's several problems and issues that the Corinthians face, and the different problems really boil down to the issue of selfishness. We talk about the theme of the whole book being the power of, of the community of believers, that we is greater than just me. And the different areas that are addressed in the different chapters are just different ways that your selfishness applies such that it breaks the fellowship of the greater whole. And so in chapters 8, 9, and 10, the theme and the issue that's being addressed is the issue of idolatry. That's what's being dealt with. And how this idolatry destroys this community. So today we're going to start in verse number 14, and we'll read it in just a second, but it says in verse 14 that we are to flee from idolatry. And he says, I speak unto wise men in verse number 15, because idolatry causes division. It places something between you and your heavenly Father. Now, we may not think of ourselves as idolaters. We're not out carving statues and setting them up in our homes and bowing down and praying to them. But yet still, that is the subject God is dealing with, and so this is the subject we're going to study. And the title that I've given the message today is How Idolatry Destroys Fellowship. So if you'll follow along, I'm going to start in verse 14. We're going to read to verse 22. Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, judge ye what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. Behold Israel after the flesh. Are not they which eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What say I then, that the idol is anything, or that which is offered in sacrifice to idols is anything? But I say that the things with the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. And I would not that you should have fellowship with devils. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. You cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. 
Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Let's go to the Lord and just ask him to teach us what he wants us to understand about this fellowship that he so desires with him. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you this day for loving us so much and taking the initiative to do all the work to provide for us the ability that we can have fellowship together with you through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank you for desiring yourself to have that fellowship. You created man so that you could have that fellowship with us. And, and yet, who are we? What is man that thou art mindful of him? Heavenly Father, we're humbled by this gesture. We're, we're, we're moved by this truth. And we just ask you that you would help us to see, that you would help us to understand how we can enjoy that fellowship with you today and tomorrow, and the next day, and every day, even though there is an enemy, even though he is trying to destroy the fellowship, yet, Lord, we can preserve it. We can walk with you. Teach us these things, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Two main things we need to look at. The first one is pretty clear. It's Christian fellowship. Christian fellowship. We're going to be talking about how this fellowship is developed. This fellowship with, with God is his idea. We talked about that already. He's the one who originated this lesson today is about fellowship and unity and the things that destroy it. So last week we talked about the nation of Israel and the examples of their life and they did some things right and they did some things wrong. And we ended last week with verse number 13. Let's just remind ourselves of verse 13. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. Wherefore, he says in verse number 14, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. So God promises in verse number 13 that there will never occur in the life of a Christian believer temptations and things that will come into your life that are so great that you cannot bear them. He promises you that. He promises you that because of his faithfulness, he will be with you in the midst of the trial. He'll be with you every step of the way. He promises you that knowing that even though the circumstances of your life may not be that pleasant, he is right there with you. That is in of itself a form of fellowship. You are in it together. In fact, in Philippians, it calls it the fellowship of his sufferings. And knowing that he will provide a way out one of the ways out is described in verse 14. Wherefore, run away from idolatry. I'm giving you a way out. Don't mess with it. Because idolatry destroys fellowship. God is faithful. You know where else it says God is faithful? It says it in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse number 9. God is faithful. Notice, by whom ye were called unto the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. He's so faithful, he called you. You all are called to something. What you're called to is fellowship with Jesus Christ. This fellowship we're going to look at, this Christian fellowship, is actually twofold, and these two steps actually must be completed in order. The first one is fellowship with Christ. Fellowship with Christ. It's described by verse 16 as it starts out, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? 
Now let's consider that word communion. Communion is literally just the combination of common and union. Common union, communion. It's like common unity, community, common unity. That's the theme of the entire book of 1 Corinthians. Communion, the word communion, is also translated in many other places as the word fellowship. And that's one of the things that we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, a place that we've looked at frequently, in verse number 14 where it says, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness. Communion literally means fellowship. Fellowship literally means communion. It says in verse 16, the communion of the blood of Christ. What is that? What is the communion of the blood of Christ? Well, that specifically speaks to our personal fellowship with Jesus Christ. 1 John chapter 1 is all about fellowship as well. It says in verse number 3, that which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Jump down to verse number seven. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. In that case, the one with another is not us between one another. It's between us and the Lord Jesus Christ. If we walk in the light as the Lord is in the light, we, one with another, have fellowship together, right? And it says, notice the blood of Jesus Christ cleanseth us from all sin. So the association together, the fellowship together, is based on the personal application of the blood of Jesus Christ in your life. This is much more than just believing in Jesus. A lot of people believe in Jesus, right? but they don't have the actual personal application of the blood to their life. They don't actually have personal fellowship and communion with Jesus Christ. The Bible says even the devils believe and tremble. Anybody can say they believe. But really having that communion with the Son, that's what he's talking about. You share in the application of the blood. That points to a relationship. That's biblical salvation. That's what it is. That means that you and Jesus Christ, you're actually friends. You actually spend time together. You actually consult him on your decisions. You actually talk to him. You actually listen when he talks to you. You actually have a personal, living relationship. It's not just saying, I'm not an atheist. It's not just walking into a building like this on a Sunday morning. It's having a personal relationship. It is the communion of the blood of Jesus Christ. And this must be first, which is why it's listed first. That's why it's listed first, the communion of the blood of Christ. The second one is then fellowship with Christians. So verse 16 continues to say, the bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. The communion of the body of Christ, us one with another, must come second 
Because without each and every one of us first having the communion of the blood of Christ with Jesus Christ personally and individually, well, the truth of the matter is, just look around the room. I mean, we wouldn't have that much in common with each other. Now, some of you would, and some of you, you know, you've grown up in the same neighborhood and been friends ever since you were like three, and, you know, God bless you, that's a wonderful thing. But the truth of the matter is, even in this sort of homogeneous area of the country where we live, the truth is there's, there's enough diversity for us to not really bother to spend time with each other. Isn't that right? If it weren't for Jesus Christ, if it weren't for the fact that Jesus is in me and Jesus is in you, and oh, by the way, now it matters that I'm with you too. That's why this one has to be second. We can never have genuine fellowship with one another if each of us don't have genuine fellowship with the Lord first. That's certainly clear. So this passage speaks to this issue that we call communion. We call it the Lord's Supper, right? It's the cup. It's the bread. It's one of two church ordinances together with baptism. And we're going to get into the details and the nuts and bolts of how that all plays out in just a few weeks when we turn the page and get into chapter number 11. So I'll save that for that time. But this issue of the communion of the Lord's table, well, it starts to be introduced here in the context of fellowship with the Lord and with the idea that it can be destroyed. And so we're going to start just by understanding what the Lord desires of us. So consider the imagery that he's given to us. He says that the bread represents the body, right? So he says in verse 17, we, being many, are one bread. So if you're going to make bread and you get flour and eggs and salt and oil and sugar and whatever you put in bread and and you mix all that together and you let it rise if it's going to rise or not and you bake it together then it becomes bread and the bread that comes out well that's something brand new you can no longer separate the individual ingredients out it now becomes one bread and in the Bible times, we are dealing with this issue of communion and the Lord's Supper. It's going to be unleavened bread, so it actually doesn't rise. It's going to be unleavened bread because leaven in the Bible represents sin, and, and so it represents the body of Christ, and Christ certainly had no sin, and so the bread that represents that has to have no leaven in it. So the only way that you can separate parts of hard, crispy, unleavened bread is to break it, right? Because we're now made to be one bread. Because God desires to have fellowship. And he desires to have fellowship for us to have fellowship with him so much that he sent his only son to die so that we could have it. But that's not all. Just as much as God went to all those measures and his body was broken for us, so that we could restore that lost image of God and have fellowship with him again. Just as much he desires for each of us to have fellowship with each other. And it's really easy for us to say we have fellowship with God, but then when we look around the room and we think, well, I don't know about that guy. I don't know about her. I mean, you know, I don't know. And I'm going to tell you something. People leave churches all the time because they don't like somebody else in the church. Jesus Christ went to all that trouble so that we could share this kind of fellowship with each other because that's a manifestation of his love toward us to a lost and dying world. 
So important is it, for example, notice Psalm 133 and verse number 1. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And this idea of unity, in fact, the very word unity only appears three times in all the Scripture here in Psalm 133. We're going to see the other two in just a second as well. But I want you to just to think of it this way, so much so that I put it in your notes so you can write it down and hopefully remember it. The same Spirit that lives in me and you ought to be able to get along with himself. Amen? The same Spirit lives in me if I know Jesus as my Savior. Is the same Spirit that lives in you if you know Jesus as your Savior. And if that Spirit is controlling my life, and if that Spirit is controlling your life, why in the world would you and I not be able to get along? How is that possible? It's the same Spirit. Though I don't know about you, but the last time I checked, I get along with me pretty good. I pretty much think I'm right most all the time. And if I don't think I'm right, I typically agree, if that's possible. The same with the Lord. I bet you the Lord gets along with himself just fine. And if he controls me and if he controls you, you know what, we're going to get along just fine. So divisions in the body means somebody, or maybe both bodies, I don't know, aren't really letting the Lord control them. Isn't that the case? So it's referred to in Ephesians chapter 4, first three verses. Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherein you are called. Remember, we already saw that we're called unto the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ. Verse 2, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You see, the unity of the Spirit already exists. We don't need to create it. It says we need to endeavor just to keep it, just to keep it. The Spirit's in me, the Spirit's in you, and, well, our flesh wants to drag us in different directions, so we have to endeavor. It's going to take some work. We're going to have to work at it a little bit, right? We have to endeavor to just preserve what already exists, and that what already exists is the this unity that exists because the same spirit that's in me is the same spirit that's in you. But it's only really going to play itself out the way God intends when each individual person is filled with the Holy Spirit, is led, guided, controlled by the Holy Spirit. So in Ephesians 5.18, where it speaks of the filling of the Spirit, it gives us the cash-equivalent description of what exactly that means in Colossians 3.16, where it says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. How do you know that those are the definitions one of the other? Because in both cases, the results are the same. Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody in your heart to the Lord. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, and you do the same exact thing, singing and speaking psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly is being filled with the Spirit. So if we're going to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit controlled by the Spirit... That's only going to happen when we go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 and 4, and we're all eating of the same spiritual meat and drinking of the same spiritual drink. Because the last usage of unity comes a little further down in Ephesians chapter 4, in verse number 13, 
where it says, until we all come in the unity this time of the faith. The unity of the faith. Because let's just face it. Don't kid yourself. You can't have unity if you don't agree. You can't. And it doesn't matter how bad you want it. It doesn't matter what churches and ecumenical movements think. It doesn't matter that they say that we value unity, so let's lay aside doctrine. No, absolutely not. Unity comes only, like Amos 3.3 says, when two walk together. If you and I don't agree about a particular point, on that particular point, guess what? We're not unified. We're just not. We might be unified in other things, okay, but we're not unified totally. And ultimately, we'll all be fully unified when we all come to the full measure and stature of the person of Jesus Christ at the rapture. So all the little problems and issues that I got in my life and all the little problems and issues you got in your life are all going to be worked out. And we're all just going to be like Jesus. And there's not going to be any more reservation. But in the meantime, all the more that we allow this book to dwell in us richly. That's all the more that we're filled with the Spirit today. And all the more we get to enjoy this fellowship, not just with Christ, but with one another today. Why do you emphasize all that doctrine? Because it's the only way to achieve those things. It's the only possible way. It's God's will for us to be united. Jesus prayed for it in John chapter 17 before his crucifixion. Verse number 11, praying to the Father. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to thee, Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. Verse 21, that they all may be one as thou, Father, are in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and thou in me, that they may, be, they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and thou hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Jesus prayed in his last moments for his disciples. Study that prayer. He prayed for those who would believe after them, meaning us also, that they would be one as Jesus and the Father are one. Do we really understand the Godhead, the Trinity? Kind of, not really. It's a hard thing. I mean, God is three distinct, unique persons, yet God is clearly one God. That's who he is. Working in perfect and total harmony. Each person of the Godhead fully possesses all the fullness of the Godhead. And yet they have different roles. To whatever level you can get that, that's how Jesus wants us to be. That's how Jesus wants us to be. We're all complete in Christ, yet we all have different roles. And everybody does what they are called to do. There's an application of this that comes back from the Old Testament. So we go back to verse number 18 of our text that says, Behold, Israel after the flesh, are not they which eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? It's a rhetorical question. Of course they are. So in the Old Testament system, you have the priests that receive the sacrifices 
from the people. And so then they would offer these meat sacrifices to God on the altar. What they would do then is they would take a portion of that sacrifice and they would keep it for themselves and for their families and that's how they ate. That was their food as well. Causing these priests then to take part, partake of the altar, right? Personally with the altar sacrifice. In other words, the sacrifice that was given to the Lord was also personally applied to the family of the priests. Just like the sacrifice of Jesus' blood is personally applied to us. So one of the other synonyms of communion and fellowship as we go down in 2 Corinthians 6, now in verse 15, it says, What part, that's the word, hath he that believeth with an infidel? Because part, well, that's fellowship. That's what he's talking about. Just remember, God is a Judeo-Christian God. New Testament Christianity is born out of Judaism. The Lord's Supper is born out of the Passover. Jesus initiated the, Pass or the Lord's Supper during the Passover meal with his disciples back in Matthew chapter 26. You can see that for reference. But the goal is fellowship. That's what God desires. And he desires that so that we can experience the maximum amount of joy. 1 John chapter 1, we saw the context was fellowship. Verse number 4, And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. So when you're at odds with your brothers and sisters in the Lord, you have stress, you have anxiety, you have trouble, you have sorrow. You don't have joy. You have joy when we agree, when we rejoice together, when we, we're walking together, we're serving together, we're working together. That's when we have joy. Christian fellowship is the perfect unity of man and God and the perfect unity of believers in Jesus Christ. If you don't currently enjoy that level of fellowship, you can. You really can. And the Lord's Supper is just a picture of that, and that's why Jesus made an ordinance of the church, and that's why Jesus asked us to repeat it every so often because, well, we needed to be reminded of it. Because if we're not reminded of it, well, things happen and, and our minds get twisted and our flesh gets in the way and, well, we need to speak clean off of space and, and just remind ourselves of that. We're going to do that in a few weeks when we study this passage. Now, can I just encourage you as your pastor that if you're a member of this church and when we celebrate the Lord's table together, frequently we don't do it on Sunday mornings. We frequently do it on Sunday evenings. We ask you to come back. I actually do that on purpose because I want you to make it special. I want you to come back for it. Many of you don't. Many of you don't. You know who you are. If you do, it, why would you not make that a priority in your life? This coming time, we will do it in the morning because it'll be that morning's lesson. But generally speaking, I want to see that you value fellowship with the Lord and fellowship with the body, and that's what the Lord's table is all about. Sadly, not everybody enjoys that fellowship, and that really is the next area of study in this passage. I'll, I'm calling it counterfeit fellowship. Counterfeit fellowship. This is the destruction of fellowship. Now, if you've read the Bible at all, you know that Satan is a deceiver. He beguiled Eve in the Garden of Eden. 
According to John 8, 44, he's a liar. He's the father of lies. He doesn't want you to have fellowship with God or with one another, and he will do whatever he can to stop it. He has learned over the centuries that physical persecution of Christian believers does not stop it. Physical persecution, the thing that maybe we fear the most, I don't know, actually brings people closer together. It causes people to exercise more faith in the Lord when things are going badly, and it causes people to connect together with one another, to circle the wagons, if it will, huddle together, encourage one another, because the devil's attacking us. So persecution really doesn't work to destroy fellowship. The devil is not stupid. He has other tactics. And the way then that he has chosen to work most effectively to get people to not connect to God and to not connect with one another in the name of God is to offer a counterfeit. So that people think that they're connected to God when they're not. This, my friends, is the mind that has wisdom. I speak to those that have wisdom. Judge ye what I say. This is the devil's playground. So God warns us in verse 14 to flee from idolatry. And then look down in verse 20. But I say that the things with the, which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. And I would not that you should have fellowship with devils. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. You cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. So idolatry, practically speaking, in a sense, is something that replaces God. And if that's the case, well, the root thereof is satanic. It's satanic. So we shouldn't be surprised to see a false Christ, a false Christ. See, long before God ever created man and placed him in the Garden of Eden, God had fellowship with his other creation, the angelic beings. The word Christ, you may be aware, literally just means anointed. That's what it means. It means anointed. And Lucifer was called the anointed cherub in Ezekiel 28 and verse 14. And his desire was to be like the Most High in Isaiah 14 and verse 14. So as a result of this pride, God cast him out of the third heaven. And now he's no longer known as Lucifer. He's known as the devil and Satan. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 2, he's the prince of the power of the air and he sets the course of this world. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, he's the god of this world. We know certainly that there were pagan temples. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, we talked about the meat offered to idols in the pagan temples. We know that all through the Old Testament, we had situations like Baal and Dagon and Ashtaroth and these different pagan gods and temples and false worship that was going on. So Satan wants to be like God. He wants to be worshipped as God. So at Jesus Christ's first coming, after Jesus' 40 days of fasting and temptation in the wilderness, the serpent, Satan, comes up to him in Matthew 4, verses 8 and 9, and he offers to Jesus Christ all the kingdoms of the world if Jesus would just be willing to do one thing, fall down and worship me. 
That's what he wants. Of course, Jesus Christ says, no way, Jose. We all worship God. That's all there is. But that reveals who he is. That reveals his motive. It reveals how he works. He's a false Christ. So just before Jesus returns the second time, Satan once again is going to make his move. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, there it is the second time, and by our gathering together unto him, that you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day, that second advent, shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he, as God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. That's during the tribulation. So going down to verse number 6, the passage continues, And now ye know what withholdeth, that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way, and then shall that capital W wicked antichrist be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. The mystery of iniquity, the spirit of antichrist is at work today prior to the time of the actual revealing. The devil must be active even now, even before that time. You need to understand his primary area of operation is not the brothels of this world. It's religion. It's religion. He's a false Christ, and he desires worship. And if there's a false Christ, well, then there must also be a false church. See, he, the false Christ has to have a place where he can receive his worship. The true church of Jesus Christ manifests God's wisdom to the demonic forces in heavenly places. Did you know that? Ephesians chapter 3 and verse number 10 says, To the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places, these are the demonic forces, might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. God is going to reveal his manifold, multifaceted wisdom to the demonic forces through the body which is the church. The very thing that he created, this body of Christ, the true church is the very vehicle by which he preaches his wisdom to those that had fallen. So God will indeed warn the true church about the false church. I speak as to wise men. Judge ye what I say. During the tribulation and after the rapture, in other words, the false Christ and the false church will be revealed fully. That's when it will be fully revealed. If there's a false church, well, which one is it? Can we identify it? Does the Lord reveal clues to us so that we can find it and beware? Well, if it's a counterfeit, it must be kind of similar to the real thing. And what exactly can we remind ourselves about the real thing? What is it that we know to be true 
of the true church. Well, it's not only the body of Christ, it's also the bride of Christ. It's also the bride of Christ. So is it possible that there's a false bride out there? Well, Revelation 17 seems to reveal her. Verse number one, And there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, and I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand, full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her, her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. You see, beauty and the beast is not who you think she is. She's a false bride of a false Christ because that beast is the Antichrist. You see, this church is known for killing true believers and hiding their bodies in the catacombs. She's known for her wealth and riches and kings bowing down to her. She's known for the colors purple and scarlet adorned on the clothing of the highest priest. She's symbolized with a golden cup that she holds up every Sunday in her worship. And since her worship is of a false Christ, she's committing spiritual fornication against the one true God of the universe. Her location is, on a, is in a city that sits on seven hills. Verse number 9 of Revelation 17, And here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. Do you know what city in the world sits on seven hills? It's Rome. We'll go back to 1 Corinthians chapter number 10 and verse number 20. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, you need to understand that word Gentiles refers literally to pagan, unsaved people. The things which the pagan, unsaved Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. But isn't it ironic somewhat? I mean, they're, they're doing it thinking they're offering it to God. They're just deceived. And I would not that you should have fellowship with devils. Of course not. You see, God won't tolerate infidelity because infidelity breaks fellowship. It destroys fellowship. That's why adultery is a biblical ground for divorce. It breaks the covenant of fellowship. God himself, we saw previously in the Old Testament, refers to the nation of Israel as his wife. She commits this spiritual harlotry going after other pagan idols and other gods of the peoples of the land. And God gives her a writing of divorcement, a bill of divorcement, and puts her away because of this spiritual adultery that she commits. Look back at 2 Corinthians 6, 15 and 16. We've been referring to these things. And what concord hath Christ with Belial? 
Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, as God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Verse 17, Wherefore, believer, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. In other words, flee idolatry. God tells the true believers to come out from the fellowship among those who are idolatrous, unsaved people. Well, that's just like we read back in Revelation, finishing chapter 17, going into chapter 18 of Revelation, starting in verse number 2. And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. We know who she is now. And has become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit, and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. And I heard another voice from heaven, listen to the voice, saying, Come out of her, my people. Come out, that you be not partakers of her sins, and that you receive not of her plagues. So God calls all true born-again believers who might have found themselves in this false worship, in this false church, in this false Christ system to come out of her, to come out of her and to join together with the real church. There's a false Christ, there's a false church, and there is false communion. False communion. Verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. You cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. The Lord's table is holy. But the false church has certainly corrupted it. The false church has a cup. The false church has a table. It's the table of devils. It's masquerading as the table and the cup of the Lord, but it's not. You know what it's called? It's called the Eucharist. That's what it's called. And the teaching of the Eucharist is that when the priest stands to bless the cup and when the priest stands to bless the host, the bread, something miraculous literally happens, they teach. They call it transubstantiation that those physical elements literally transform into the actual body and the actual blood of Jesus Christ. Now, that's a perversion of what Jesus Christ said in John chapter 6. We discussed this last week. Let me remind you in verse 53. Verily, verily, I say unto you, Jesus said this, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. That's where they get it. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So this false church takes this couple of verses, and they develop this doctrine, and they wave the magic wand and say abracadabra, and magically, supposedly, these things happen. They don't happen. And that's not the understanding of John chapter 6, because if you were to go and to ask somebody who is a faithful member of that church, Have you ever received Jesus Christ? You know what a faithful member of that church system will typically tell you? Oh, absolutely. 
every Sunday at the Mass. I receive Jesus every Sunday when I eat the wafer. I've just received him. And that's what they think. That's what they're taught to say when Bible-believing Christians talk to them. Listen, please don't think that we're mad at Catholics. There's wonderful, wonderful people that are just deceived into a system that has been sold to them that the Bible reveals with the mind of wisdom is actually not God's system. God has made his system very clear. We stand on truth and we tell you so that you can know God is trying to communicate with you. There is a system and the system is messed up. The people are just a part of it. They've just grown up in it. They were always taught that. They're probably wonderful people. But the system has been revealed to be not biblical. We know that John 6, 53 and 54 are not literal because in John 6, 63, as that discourse continues, he says to his disciples, it's the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit, they are life. That's how you get the life, through the words. Now go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and look at verse number 16 and pay attention to the words. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? It does not say that the cup is the blood. It's the communion of the blood. It does not say the bread is the body. It's the communion, it's the fellowship of the body. Some people just can't read. Look back in verse number 7 of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Neither be ye idolaters, as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down, here it is, to eat and drink, and rose up to play. Boy, religious idolatry has to have something to do with eating and drinking then, doesn't it? It's a false communion. It's false fellowship. And God says in verse 21, ye cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. You cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. Why can ye not? Because he won't allow it. He won't allow it. Go ahead and try. Don't go, I'm not telling you to go ahead and try. I'm just telling you, <laughs> people who actually would try will find that when they try, the Lord's like, okay, I'm out. I'm done. He will not tolerate infidelity. He won't do it. Oh, you've made your choice, have you? Oh, you'd prefer the devil's cup and the devil's table, would you? I'm out. Go ahead. You made your choice. Go ahead. God won't allow it to continue. A little here, a little there, a little bit everywhere. You're either in or you're out. You choose the harlot, he's out. He's out. Don't fellowship with devils by putting things between you and God. That's idolatry. That's what it is. And according to verse number 22, it provokes God to jealousy. I spent a little time this week just looking up, you know, the Bible says in the Old Testament, I could have given you a lot of references, we don't have time. Our God is a jealous God. In fact, in one place it says that his name, capital J, is Jealous. You know that every single reference to God being jealous is a reference to his anger 
and it's judgment. Every single time. If you ever had a situation in a marital relationship where one spouse did something to cause the other spouse to be jealous, well, that's a manifestation of anger, isn't it? Yes, there's hurt, but there's anger. And, and God's jealousy, provoking God to jealousy, is provoking God's wrath and judgment. That's what it is. And it says, are, are, are you really thinking that you're stronger than he is? In other words, do you think that you're so strong that you could resist his judgment? Do you think that you're so strong that you could stop him from leaving? I want to have fellowship with both. Well, I'm going to leave. Well, I'm not going to let you leave. You, you're going to provoke him to jealousy, and you think you're stronger to stop him from being able to do that? No, of course not. Of course not. You're not going to get away with it forever. And in the immediate consequence, he's going to leave you alone. No more personal fellowship although he desperately wants it. He desperately wants it. If you're not enjoying the personal fellowship with Jesus Christ, somebody left. It wasn't him, not first. You left first, and he let you. He let you. You know, this is a huge problem in the time in which we live in these last days. It's referred to as Laodicea. And in Laodicea, we've lost our fellowship with Jesus Christ. In Revelation chapter 3, it refers to it. Church is having church. Laodiceans think they're doing great. They're rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. They don't even understand that they're poor and wretched and miserable and blind and naked. And Jesus Christ is outside the church. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and here it is, sup with him. That's fellowship. That's food, and food is fellowship. That's biblical. I will come into him, and I will sup with him. He wants to have fellowship with you, Christian. In Laodicea, people have in church, and Jesus is locked outside. You might have walked away from him, and he's honoring your request, but he's begging you, let me back in. Let me back in. Can you hear him knocking today? Can you hear him? I mean, you've got to listen. That door only has one knob. It's on the inside. You've got to open it. Can you hear him? Even though we've done the things to offend him, even though we've done the things to turn him away, he still wants you. He still loves you that much. And he wants to enjoy it with you individually, and he wants you to enjoy it with everybody else as well. I don't know what it is that he has for you today, but I pray that you get it taken care of before we're done. Let's pray together.